a hill to die on. That's a common phrase that we hear from time to time in our culture. When we say that something is a hill to die on, we mean something like it's worth fighting for, it's significant, it's something on which we should firmly take our stand. When we say that this is not a hill on which to die, then we generally mean that it's something that we should treat with flexibility, with a measure of healthy indifference. Perhaps this figure of speech derives from the battlefield, I'm not sure, but elevated ground is more easily defended and it provides a better view of the enemy's movements. So soldiers are often called upon to defend a hill with their very lives. In fact, history records many of the major battles are ones in which there is hill to be defended, a hill to be defended or ground to be defended. I think of the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War fought amidst a number of series of prominent hills and ridges outside of the uh, little town of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, July of 1863. The Union Army was amassed along a ridge, and on its right flank, the Union troops held Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, and over on its other flank, there was a, they held a Little Round Top and Round Top, and there was a ridge in between that they sought to hold now the Confederate commander who was attacking, Robert E. Lee, directed General Ewell to take Culp's Hill. He addressed General Longstreet to, and asked him to take Little Round Top, and you've probably heard of Pickett's Charge, which was General Pickett's attack right on the center of the line at Cemetery Ridge. Now, directing the Northern Army, General Meade commanded his troops to defend these hills at all cost. Culp's Hill, Little Round Top, Cemetery Ridge were hills to die on. And many thousands of men did that day, in those three days of that great epic battle. Even the briefest account of this battle of Gettysburg will note that General Ewell's failure to capture Culp's Hill was crucial to the Confederate defeat there. General Ewell was replacing the recently fallen General Stonewall Jackson Jackson was Lee's most trusted general, and the two seemed to be able to read one another's mind. But when General Lee, in his characteristically understated, gentlemanly way, suggested to General Ewell that he take Culp's Hill, General Ewell took it as a hill not to die on. Now, had Jackson been there, the thinking goes, he would have understood that General Lee meant that is a hill to die on. Well, Ewell passed up an early chance on July 1st to take Culp's Hill, passing on that chance. He never got another one, and the battle was lost, and many would say that the taking of that hill was crucial to the outcome of the battle. Could Ewell have gone back in time? His name is on every account of this battle. And I think, could he have gone back in time to do it again, he would have taken that hill at all cost. It was for him and for his soldiers a hill to die on. And so in warfare, choosing the right hill on which to die can determine the fate of an army. And in a figure of speech, choosing the right hill on which to die determines the spiritual well-being and the eternal destiny of every soul. When your days on earth are over, and you stand in eternity, will you look back and know, I stood on the right hill? 
When it comes to your relationship with God and the salvation of your souls, it is crucial that you choose the right hill on which to stand at all cost. Where are your feet planted, spiritually speaking? On what spiritual position have you taken your stand? When it comes to our relationship with God, we have to choose the right hill on which to live and to firmly stake ourselves there. And that is the burden of Hebrews chapter 12 as we come to the second half of this great chapter. To understand it properly, we enter here another warning passage. Pastor Pratt, I think, last summer took us through a number of those and brought that idea out through Hebrews. We remember that uh, context, that there are these numerous warning passages throughout Hebrews. Remember, the Hebrew believers are tempted to give up. They're tempted to say, I'm not sure Christ is a hill to die on. They were tempted to go off into another, uh, into another place, to Judaism, and to choose that other hill, which seemed to be safer. They were a discouraged lot, and they were contemplating this departure. The author pleads with them throughout the book, don't do this. Don't leave the Christian faith. And he periodically stops then to warn them through the book of Hebrews not to abandon their faith. Chapter 1, verse 5 and following, Do not abandon Christ or you will suffer judgment from God. Chapter 3, verse 7 to 4.13, an extended passage where he says, Do not harden your hearts or you will not enter God's rest. 5.11 through 6.12, Do not abandon your faith for if you do, you will never regain the hill. Chapter 10, 19-39, do not sin willfully against the faith or you will be destroyed. Chapter 12, verse 14-29, to 29, heed God's command to stand on the hill of Christian faith or you will be consumed by the wrath of God. Hold your ground at all cost. There's a reason the feel-good churches of our day you won't see a sermon series through the book of Hebrews. You might hear a few verses from the book of Hebrews. You might hear a passage from time to time expounded from the book of Hebrews. But you will not hear of an entire sermon series through the book of Hebrews unless it is completely twisted out of place because it says such things as, Our God is a consuming fire. And if you do not hold to the faith of Jesus Christ crucified, you will be judged by this God. It's a very somber message, a very serious message from this author, and is one with which we must come to terms. Now as we do that, Hebrews chapter 12, following these several warning passages prior to this, last warning passage, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 begins with this call that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, by these believers who have gone before. Therefore, we should run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And so should fix our eyes, verse 2, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Fix our eyes on Jesus. That leads to, to verse 4 of chapter 12 through verse 13, where the author issues this call to endure hardship as the discipline of a loving father. Not to respond to discipline by running away from Christ. How foolish it would be to abandon the hill of Jesus Christ for some other hill simply on the basis of hardship. You may be treated, in fact, as a child of God 
when you endure these hardships. So keep going. Now at verse 12 of this chapter, we read this call then to us as believers. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. All this discussion about following Jesus and persevering in the race and holding on to the hope as you handle the hardships of life, all of this is mere rhetoric if there is not a response. If the truths of God's Word do not change your thinking and change your behavior, your efforts to hear God are in vain. The point is to act. The point is to respond. So, for instance, we find that God's disciplinary development in holiness is holiness, verse 10. In in discipline, He brings us, verse 10, to holiness. He brings us, in verse 11, to peace. And that leads then naturally to verse 14, which is a call to what? Holiness and peace. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God's training is meant to produce holiness and peace and righteousness, which follows then with a command to pursue holiness, peace, and righteousness. It follows. So as we read verses 12 and 13, these feeble arms and weak knees and making level paths and running the race, what does that to look like? What does it mean to strengthen our feeble arms and weak knees and make level paths for our feet? It means, first of all, to seize the moral high ground. To seize the moral high ground, verses 14 to 17. We find there in verse 14 that we're to pursue peace and holiness, make every effort to live at peace with all men. Make every effort. We're called here to chase after peace in our relationships with people. Peace with others is not a, is not a gift-wrapped package that God hands to us upon salvation. It is a hill that we are to purposefully take. It's an effort that we're to make. Peace with all men. Certainly that means to pursue peaceful relationships with all people everywhere. I think that it certainly means that. But the idea here is that we should go hard after peace in cooperation with other believers. The Greek phrase that is used here, it is peace with, peace in community with all other believers, I think is the idea. William Lane says, The church is the demonstration in society of the presence of the new age. Our assembly is to be a dynamic reflection of the peace that is characteristic of God's reign. For those of you here in the adult class this morning, that carries a little more punch, doesn't it, that phrase? Did you hear it? The church is the demonstration in society of the presence of the new age. We are to be a dynamic reflection of the peace that is characteristic of God's reign. And we are to make every effort, make every effort to be at peace with one another, make every effort to be holy. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness is the moral distinctiveness that marks the character and the lifestyle of one who genuinely belongs to God. If your life is not characterized by a spiritual distinctiveness that marks you off as belonging to Jesus, then one of two things are going to happen in your life, according to this passage. The first, which is assumed, is that you are going to repent. The second is that you will not see the Lord in eternity. That's all that's offered for us here. 
without that moral distinctiveness that marks us off as Jesus' people, we will not see the Lord. We're to take that very seriously and to pursue after a moral distinctiveness. Christianity, as I mentioned in previous messages here, is not a ticket by which we just freely go to heaven and then live any old way that we please until then. It is a call for us to live a righteous life before the Lord. It is a life staked on the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. And those who have come to experience this reality are progressively brought into the likeness of Christ. There may be sin, but it will lead in the end to repentance, as it will lead in the end to holiness. Holiness. Peace. Perseverance, verse 15. I don't know what else to call it as we look at this verse. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it. Again, we see here the moral initiative that we must exercise in the power of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. That is, that no one falls short of experiencing God's saving grace, although knowing all about it. That no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This is an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 18, which describes individual Israelites who developed idolatrous desires and thus corrupted the entire nation. So there's a warning to the Hebrews here. If left unchecked, a bitter root of rebellion and distrust in God will grow up within your assembly and will pollute the whole. Don't let any root of bitterness develop like that within the community as it did in Old Testament Israel. And the application for us, I think, is very clear. There is no such thing as private sin. There is no such thing as private sin. Sin always has an effect upon the community of God's people. Don't miss the grace of God, says the author. Don't let this bitter root grow up within that would turn you away from Jesus Christ and added to these is purity, verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. Another position of moral high ground is moral purity. The author uses Esau here as an example from Genesis chapter 25. He epitomizes the sensual person, the person who lives for the temporal pleasures of this life in disregard of God's will. Now let me stop there and say that's all of us, right? We do at times live for the sensual pleasures of this world in contempt of God's will. But there are those whose lives are character characterized that way. They're blind to eternity. It's all about this life here and now. And the next life never has any real impact upon their lives here. In Genesis 25, Esau chose a full stomach over identification with the promises of God to his people. It was not a mere bowl of soup that brought Esau down. It was his focus. He failed to stand on the moral high ground. And it did not end for well for Esau, did it? Verse 17. He sought a change. He sought repentance, the, word, the Greek word that's used. He sought a change of mind, but he could not affect it even with tears. 
That's the natural way, I guess, of reading the text, that it's his own repentance that he could not find. The problem is that we find no evidence of repentance in Esau in the Genesis record, or any attempt to be repentant. And it fits the context better here to say that with tears, Esau sought to change perhaps Jacob's mind. Having sold his birthright, having failed to hold the moral high ground, Esau saw what he had done wrong and he desperately sought to reverse matters, but all of his lobbying was for naught. It was too late. Like General Ewell, who realized that he should have captured Culp's Hill, Esau realized that he should have never sold his birthright, but it was too late. And there will be countless numbers of people, the Bible continues to assure us, there will be countless numbers of people who realize that they should have submitted their lives unreservedly to Christ. But there will be a day of reckoning that permits no more opportunity. Don't identify with those people, says the author of Hebrews. Listen, don't commit the same error. You have to stake your position on the right hill and stay there. If you abandon your post, if you sacrifice the moral high ground, you will miss the grace of God. So choose your hill wisely. Some of his readers were in fact waffling between these two hills of Christianity and Judaism. They were positioned on the hill of Christianity, but thinking of abandoning it. The author now ties his call to moral responsibility in verses 14 to 17 to a consideration of the hill on which his readers were then standing by faith. So we must seize the moral high ground, verses 14 to 17. Secondly, we need to stand on our privileged position. We have here contrasted two hills. There is first of all Mount Sinai. You might even find it in a map at the back of your Bible if you'd like, or to just think in your mind of uh, biblical geography. There's Mount Sinai there on the Sinai Peninsula to the east of Egypt. And then to the north and the southern part of Israel there is Mount Zion on Jerusalem. These two hills are now contrasted in this section of Scripture. First of all, Mount Zion, which is uh, Mount Sinai, rather, which is pictured as the hill of the old order, beginning at verse 18. We read there, and that is, you have come to a mountain that can be touched. I'm sorry, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. All that means is, you've, I'm not talking here in your case about a physical mountain. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched. Verse 18. And that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now what in the world is that all about? Well, we know a little bit, don't we, if we were at least halfway awake during the Scripture reading this morning. We know what this is coming from, where this is coming from. The author describes here the scene, pictured first in Exodus 19 and 20. We read the retelling of that in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is when God met with the recently liberated slaves from Egypt at Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, I'll get these hills right yet. Mount Sinai to order, 
the establishment of the covenant between himself and Israel. The Israelites stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were not permitted by God to even touch the mountain. Any person or animal violating that law was to be killed. God descended upon that mountain in a blaze of fire that produced billows of smoke. The mountain quaked. There's this blaring trumpet that grows louder and louder. And then the fear factor really starts. God speaks. The people pleaded that if they heard the voice of God any longer, they would die. Deuteronomy 5.25 At the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai, Israel experienced the dread terror of the Lord. In this solemn meeting with God, Israel saw and heard unimpeachable evidence of God's presence, but they never really saw Him. It was all smoke and gloom. It was all fire and quaking. And this encounter was no isolated event. For in fact, it stood as a metaphor of the approach to God under the Old Covenant, which emphasized His transcendence and His holy severity. And the people trembled. And not only the people, Moses himself, the man who did speak with God, who did meet with Him on the mountain, even Moses trembled in the presence of God. We talked about this at our Thursday night study this week, but a lot of people look at this and say there's two gods in the Bible. There's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. The two have nothing to do with each other. It's the same God. He's explaining to us what it means that He's a God of love and grace and mercy when He lays out for us that He's not just a gentle old grandfatherly God who strokes His white beard in the heavens and cannot find it in his gentle heart to ever insist on justice. He's a God of holy wrath. And it is when we understand his holiness and his severity and his power that we begin to appreciate his love. But what Israel sees here on Mount Sinai is this wrath, this great power of God. And they tremble with fear. That's what they should have done. And that's what any one of us would do if we stood at the bottom of Mount Sinai and saw the presence of the Lord. Picture yourself in an airplane flying into suddenly a violent storm front. You see the flashes of lightning out the window and the rain pelts the window and the plane is battered around by terrible turbulence. People are screaming as they are realizing this plane is never going to land safely. They see the terror of the Lord right out the window. They feel the terror of the Lord in their very hearts as they're going as they're flying in this airplane and sure that they don't really want to see it any longer. And they beg for God to save them and to spare them from this demonstration of his power when suddenly they lift up through the clouds and come up above the storm and their eyes set upon this magnificent scene there is the brilliance of the sun glinting off of the top of the storm clouds the turbulence over and a beautiful new world that they pass into This is a picture of what we do now as we move to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come out of the storm and the fire 
and the trauma and the turbulence that show us the justice and the severity and the wrath of God. And you've lifted now above the clouds and you stand on Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. You come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Remember what the author said, can you touch this mountain? No, you can't touch this mountain. I'm not talking now physically about Mount Sinai where God showed His wrath, but I'm talking now about a mountain you cannot touch, a position that you have, a place that you can stand, spiritually speaking. It is Mount Zion. In contrast to the dread terror of standing at Mount Sinai, we've lifted above the clouds and we've come by faith to be in this settled reality of the redemptive work accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Where? at Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. We've entered this hope of the eternal city symbolized by Jerusalem over which Christ will rule in millennial splendor and turn over someday to the Father for eternity, 1 Corinthians 15.24. So his point is this, Old Covenant Israel saw a God of dread fear on Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. And what have you seen there? There you have not seen a mountain that you cannot touch. There you have seen the humble, suffering face of Jesus Christ. There you see another face of the true God. Not a different God from the Old Testament, but there you see the face of God in all of His love. Hanging on the cross on Mount Zion, paying the penalty of sin. And so the author continues a matching list now of descriptions of being on Mount Zion, spiritually speaking, as opposed to standing at the foot of Sinai. Verse 22, in the middle of the verse, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. As angels accompanied the giving of the law, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, Hebrews 2, verse 2, so an innumerable company of angels witnessed in joyful, witnesses in joyful assembly to the glories of the new covenant secured by the resurrected Christ. You have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, verse 23. That is, believers are identified with the risen Christ who has redeemed His people and provided access for them into heaven. You have come to God, to the judge of all men, to the spirit of righteous men made perfect. That is, we relate to the same God who commends and glorifies the people of faith through the ages, whose testimony surrounds us like a cloud, chapter 11, and with whom we will someday be glorified as believers, chapter 11 and verse 40. We've come to this great assembly of people, this great church of the firstborn, these spirits of righteous men now made perfect. Verse 24, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Not to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, but to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How does Abel's blood speak? Abel's the first martyr. He's the first one who lays down his life for doing what is right. And how does his blood speak? Remember, God says, I hear the blood of your brother Abel, Cain. I hear it calling to me for justice. Now the blood of Jesus Christ calls out with a louder call, a more glorious call. It is a call that says, I have laid down my life blood for my people, and it calls for their redemption and for their justification. 
The sprinkling of the blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's death brought a curse on his murderer. Christ's death lifts the curse of sin from his murderers, his people who come to trust him by faith. So we're to seize the moral high ground. We are to stand on our position of Jesus Christ on Mount Zion, and we are thirdly to then heed God's warning. This just follows. This is so obvious as it comes to close now. Heed the warning of God Because there was a warning then, and there is, yes, a warning now, as there was love at Mount Sinai under the Old Covenant that may seem to have been hidden in the the display of wrath, so there is now, under love, yet this warning. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. The Israelites saw the terror of God and they shook with fear and they pleaded not to hear the voice of God. They heard that voice. They feared that voice. They promised to stake their position on the covenant God established with them at Mount Sinai. But what did they do in the end? All the fire and all the judgment and all the loud sounds. Though they heard it, they didn't hear it. They broke covenant with God and they suffered his wrath in the end. We need to learn from that history, Christian, is what the author is saying. We need to learn from that history. With an eye to the past, we should be motivated to heed God's command today. Middle of verse 25, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from where? From heaven, from Mount Zion, spiritually speaking. God justly punished Israel for dishonoring the law, we should consider then how much more just God will be if we turn from the Christ who is seated at the right hand of heaven's throne and whose wounds have paid the penalty of our sin. They were warned from Mount Sion, from Mount Sinai, to heed God's covenant. We have been warned from heaven to honor the conquering Savior. We should put two and two together. And we should stand our ground. We should get the command loud and clear and stand on Zion. With respect to the past, with respect to the future, verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. At that time his voice shook the earth, reference to Mount Sinai. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. A reference to Haggai 2.6. Shaking the earth and heavens is a metaphor for for cataclysmic judgment. God prophesies that he will mete out a final universal judgment, which is still future to our time. Verse 27, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, this judgment will include all physical things and all created beings, including you and me. Everything will be subjected to divine judgment so that righteousness is universally established. And everyone's relationship to Christ is revealed. All reality will be subjected to God's purifying wrath, which will distinguish His people and seat God's kingdom on earth. 
you think it would have been frightening to be in that airplane? You think it would be frightening to be at the foot of Mount Sinai? We need to know that there is a coming day when we will stand before the throne of God. His unshakable kingdom will come. And only souls found standing on his hill will remain to enter it. Our response should be obvious in the present. That's what was Sinai. This is what will be another shaking in judgment of God. Here's now what must be in the present. Verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If we see the real picture, if we perceive reality, we will stake our firm position on Jesus Christ and be welcoming His dawning, unshakable kingdom with hearts that are filled with thanksgiving and reverent, awestruck worship. If we see this real picture, if we see reality, we realize that our God is a consuming fire. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of our living God. But we have a great high priest who died on Mount Zion and who stands today, as it were, on Mount Zion. We have a great high priest who's gone into the heavens and whose sacrificial death pleads our cause before the Father. This is by no means a passive, suggestive, non-attention-getting exhortation, is it? It lets us know that heaven and hell are at stake. It lets us know that we must choose the right hill. This is no General Lee understating the significance of the command. This, passion, this passage delivers a clarion call to us as God's people to stand on the hill of Zion and to stay at the post until Jesus returns. It is a call to live a holy life and to look with hope to the coming unshakable kingdom of God. Let me address those who do not know Christ as Savior. There is a pervasive notion we need to understand in our world that you can dabble in Christianity, you can take bits and pieces of the Christ story, and you can mix those pieces together with other religions and other philosophies, and you can kind of concoct your own soup and it will bring you moral health. A similar notion is that there's all kinds of hills out there, and any one of them will do to bring you to God, as long as you stay put, as, you lo as long as you stay on it and follow the way. There's really no need to say that one hill leads us to heaven and the others damn us. The problem with such notions is that they all fall flat in the face of Scripture. It's like General Ewell saying Culp's Hill didn't really matter. It's like Esau saying his participation in the blessing of God through the promise of Abraham didn't matter. It made sense at the time. And it really makes sense in this culture and in this time. But the future reveals a different reality. This is why we say that you have to walk by faith. You must walk by faith. 
you must trust what God has said because our world puts it together in such a way where it doesn't work. How can you be so narrow as to say there's one Savior? Please know this, if you think in those terms, the Bible offers no such option. You really should leave your Bible alone and go off into all of the religions of the world which somewhere tend to commend the idea that we are all headed in some way to the same God. But the Bible doesn't allow that option. There is only one spiritual champion who has defeated death. There is only one who has paid the penalty of sin. There is only one who rules from heaven's throne. There is only one who has demonstrated through centuries of prophetic fulfillment that he is steering the ship of history. There is only one then whose promise to establish a future kingdom in righteousness is credible. There is only one Jesus and you either receive him or you reject him. You stake your position on his hill or you stake it on some other hill. And so I say with sincere and earnest love, please understand that there is coming a day when God is going to shake your hill. And you better be ready and staked on the right one. That is true for every last one of us. He's going to shake your hill. Will you be on the right one? There's coming a day when we will stand before God and we will have to answer for the way in which we've dealt with our sin. How have we seen to find it forgiven? Whenever that moment comes, as you stand before God, a God of wrath and love, you're going to want, believe me, Jesus Christ to plead your cause before his Father. Because he is the only one in heaven and on earth who can. So for those of us who know and our hearts ring true with these warnings and these commands and say, I never will return by God's grace. I never will leave the hill. I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. To those who have taken up their cross and know that they're on a one-way journey, staking their claim on Jesus Christ, then should we not take very seriously this idea that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Does your life evidence saving faith in Jesus? Are you living a morally distinctive life? Do you want to see the Lord someday? We've got to take the high ground. We need to pursue peace in our relationships with people and holiness in our daily walk. We need to persevere in the faith and pursue sexual purity and nurture a Godward orientation in our lives. And may we then leave this place, this Lord's day, awed by the stunning wonder of what God has planned for us in Jesus Christ. May a spirit of thanksgiving and worship rule our hearts and express a genuine zeal to heed the word of God until the day that we hear his voice. Let us stand firmly on Zion, for that is the ultimate hill on which to die.
That is the ultimate hill on which to live forever. There are those through the years who have heard the call of God, who have fed on his word within our assembly and within other assemblies like ours that honor God's truth. And there are those who have walked away. Under the pressure of worldly temptation, under the pressure of some other idol, some other God, some other religion. I've talked with them. I've pled with them. It happens. And I've brought this passage before you today for one reason. I doubt that any of us who have saving faith in Jesus Christ, who have professed that salvation, are saying, you know, I was really tempted to leave Christianity today. That's probably not why you're here. And for those who have not yet come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that's probably not why you're here either. You're probably here saying, I'm searching, I'm looking. For those of you that are searching, I've presented this message for us today for a very specific reason, to say, you've got to land right. And to know that I've done the job that I can do to warn you of that, as God's Word does. But for those of us who have made profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you believe that you are right with God. You believe that you are headed to heaven. I share this message with you, not so much because of today, but because of what may come in the future. There may be a day when you feel like giving up. There may be a day under the pressures and the temptations of this world that you may want to throw up your hands and walk away from Christ, evidencing that you did not belong to Him in the first place. Now, you can't keep yourself saved. You cannot keep yourself saved. But you can do what all of God's people are called to do, and that is to respond in obedience to Him. If you lose that desire of obedience, you lose that desire of holiness, you do not desire to walk worthy of Him in your life and to be distinctive unto God, then you need to not put false confidence in some profession of faith, but to look hard in your own heart and to pursue God with passion. Keep doing what you're doing right here now. But back to my point, I present this message to us so that we are insured against the storm of temptation in the future. Hold on. Stand on the hill. Don't ever leave Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, may we take it to heart. If you are drawing anyone here, individuals within our assembly, to saving faith in Jesus, I pray, God, that you'll draw them even today, that you would point them to this salvation, that they would realize that it is free, it is a gift, it is your grace working in their heart and in their life. I pray, Lord God, that you would lead them to the light. 
And I pray for those of us who know you as Savior, that we would be motivated and encouraged again with joy and awesome worship to realize how privileged we are to stand on Zion. To stand no longer at the foot of a mountain that smokes with fire and that quakes, that is filled with gloom. But that we now stand on the heights of the glorious city. That by faith we even now stand planted in heaven where we will throughout all eternity live in joy and gladness in your presence and in your light. May we never leave that position for the stew, the disgusting pottage that this world offers. May we not sell for a bowl of soup the glories of the view from Zion. I pray, dear God, that you would help us to continue on in the faith until the last. I pray, should you tarry your return, that for every one of the people that are seated here that I bury, that I might be privileged to say at their funeral, this one stood. For those who may remain to bury me, may the same testimony be sounded. That we stood for God to the end. I think of those who have gone from our assembly, those that we've met that have left other assemblies, who have heard the saving gospel of Jesus Christ time after time after time and have left. I do not even know how to pray. I just pray in my simplicity and in my childlike heart that you'd bring them back, if you will. But I pray, God, what I know I can pray on the basis of this passage, that you'd keep us here. Keep us on the rock of Zion, planted in Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.